You may be seated. I'll ask us to pray with me. God of love and God of peace, we come to continue to hear a word from you. Having heard the words of King David, let us hear your voice speaking to us anew, that we might be called to be ambassadors of peace and seek justice around us. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. So one of the things about this thing called faith, or our Christian faith, is that it is so simple and yet so deep at the same time. I, just for example, we have this song that like harkens from my uh, early teenage years when I started stumbling into this thing called church. Lord, I lift your name on high is not a new praise song on the top 10. We've been singing that for many, many years, and I remember doing the hand motions, Lord, I lift your name on high, and doing all those things. If you went to youth group in the 90s, you know what I'm talking about, because it was the song that was on refrain no matter what. And I began my Christian journey with this sort of call, this sort of internal call. I was an adolescent struggling to find my identity. I was playing hockey. I got cut from the hockey team and asking the question, who am I now if not a hockey player from Minnesota? You know, I mean, that's where I grew up and that's just what you are and who you are. And so you're asked this question as many adolescents do, but then I started going to this thing called Young Life and then I started going to different youth groups and they started talking about God who comes and loves us me in particular as I am. And that love, that message of God's love held on to me. And I've said this before, but this is uh, how I viewed God. I viewed God as something people made up to explain how we got here and where we were going when we died. That was my view of all of faith because that was the message I heard. But it wasn't until songs like this and then also the messages from my mentors along the way that I realized that the story of Christianity is just so simple that God loves us and wants to be with us. I mean, this is the Christmas message, right? God wants to be with us and we are valuable as we are, like as we are. And yet it gets so deep, right? It's not just there, like God loves us and as you are. Once you start going down a little bit more, it gets a little bit more confusing and then you start asking some more questions and things get more nuanced. I started learning a lot more about the Bible in those early years and learning all about what it meant to be a Christian. And people told me all the things I was doing wrong, like the language I was choosing to use, the parties I was choosing to go to, what I did at those parties, all of the above was kind of somehow being refiltered for what it was to be a Christian in this world. And I had no idea that that was, while true, also kind of clouded with this like shroud of culture that was around it. I grew up in a small town in Minnesota, and it was a white community, aside from the Somali migrant or immigrants that came in during the Somali war that was happening. And they kind of like lived on the fringe. And so we just didn't really like interact with them. They're relatively new, started coming when I was in sixth grade and just trying to like, they spoke a different language, they wore different clothes, they had a different faith. Like it was just, they were not part of our day-to-day community. And, uh, and so it was like, they're 
they're not Christian, right? So like, I just kind of like viewed it like that. It was nice and simple. You can kind of put them in boxes. But then I went to a camp in Windy Gap, North Carolina. And it was, uh, it was a young life camp. And I went to serve my junior year, between my junior year and my senior year. I volunteered for a month to help kids experience this beautiful thing called camp and to experience what I had experienced, which was this personal love of God for each of them. No one told me, though, that it was Urban Month. <laughs> and so there I was, and there were some volunteers that were, you know, kind of various ethnicities. But when I walked out, I was a server in the dining hall because we served people there. And, you know, when I walked out, there I was as like a handful of white kids in a sea of black South urban community kids. And let's just say it was a little bit of a culture shock in that moment. But what was more of a shock for me was when I was interacting with those that were serving with me from the inner city, I started to realize that they were different than me. They had different humor and they had different language that they used. And it was so difficult for me because at one point I wondered to myself, how can they be Christian and talk to one another like that? And to, you know, some of us might wonder, well, what were they saying? And, you know, they were, they were saying things and making fun of each other and using language that for me, it was like, you weren't supposed to do. And for them, it was just part of their language and their narrative. And I couldn't get over it. And it was really difficult for me. And yet later on, fast forward 10 years, I started to realize that people and cultures are different and that I had understood my faith as a white suburban, middle-class faith, and that everything about like what I believed that was supposed to do had a little bit of that in there. And it wasn't until like you got to step back and you realize there are different people and different traditions, because I thought faith was this personal sort of engagement, that you love God and God calls us to, you know, the sense of piety where we do better and we try to be better, like, you know, better language, better friend, you know, all of these things. And then it wasn't until college that I realized that that is part of our faith. But Jesus also calls us to this deeper sense of our faith that doesn't just maintain a personal connection, but also a communal connection, that God wants all the world to find this sense of love, belongedness, and belovedness. And to do that is more than just a message of God loves you. It's also working towards allowing others to have the experiences that free them to experience God's love more, which is also called justice, that it lifts them up to be able to be part of the community with a voice, with dignity, with everything that God gives all of us. So I'd grown up, I never worried, a white male, right? I never worried about, can I talk in this context, right? But God wants all of us to be able to speak at the table, have a voice at the table, and to call. And so I started learning more about God's call for justice, and I started questioning my the simple faith that our goal and our mission is to help others know the love of God. Like, that was it. So the mission in the world is to proclaim the gospel and help others believe in Jesus. Where I started to see the mission of God has more than just this idea of belief, 
but also has this idea, like the prophet Isaiah says, that the low shall be lifted up. Or as Jesus lived out in his life himself, that the poor or the marginalized might be brought in to community. And the more you reflect on Scripture, the more you recognize that it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And I had no sense of any of this because I had grown up in the sort of evangelical faith where it's like proclaim and the gospel uh, and help people find Jesus. And then I wasn't exposed to this other side, this deep justice and compassion, until later when I found myself at Duke Divinity School, which was a Methodist school. And there's this thing within John and Charles Wesley as they were beginning this Methodist movement. They had this phrase, there is no such thing as personal holiness without social holiness as well. No such thing as personal holiness without social holiness. So meaning that you cannot become a better version of yourself, like I was seeking to do in high school, without also seeking to make the world around us a better place. Let me give an example. Is John preached the good news. John Wesley, the beginner of the Methodist movement, preached the good news, but he didn't do it in the cathedrals of England. He did it instead on the cobblestone outside that separated the roads from the farms or the textile shops. Because at the time, to go into the church, you felt like you had to have a certain clothing, a certain language. You had to have all the things that, you know, made you proper or noble. And so though commoners that worked on the outskirts or lived, you know, in the fields, they didn't feel like they could go and partake in communion. They didn't think they could go and worship. They, when they went and sang, they would sing Bach cantatas, 16 parts songs. They had no idea how to sing. But John and Charles would preach the good news on the cobblestone, which one might say they're evangelizing, but what they were also doing is creating a space for those who could not come in and gather around the table. Similarly, and because the Bach cantatas were 16 parts and people couldn't engage, they didn't know what part of it they were supposed to sing. There was no person leading in harmony or unison or whatever the musical language is. They instead went to the bars and they picked up bar tunes. So many of the hymns that we now sing were songs rewritten to the bar tunes that people would sing gathering around a pint so that people might feel comfortable no matter what walk or place they are in life. And it was the first time I started recognizing that there was this connection between personal holiness and social holiness. And I remember gathering around a table with young colleagues that were starting this thing called ministry, and we're trying to figure out what does it look like to be the church in the 21st century? And this consultant said to us, who happened to be from evangelical non-denominations, if some of you heard of like Willow Creek and Saddleback, like he was consulting them on how to grow and expand their ministries. And one of the things that they're realizing is that they're plateauing and they're not really growing. They're just kind of maintaining. If anything, they're just taking people from other churches and finding a new place. And so he's saying, how do we connect with new people? How do we grow the church? And one of the things that he said that young millennials at the time, that's what there was, it wasn't this Gen Z, are looking for a church that connects to justice. And then why he told all of us Methodists, you know what he said to us? You guys have the history 
you have the history that connects people. And if you're a Methodist and born, you know, cradle grave, and you know, like you just have been in this thing and you don't know what I'm talking about, we have throughout our history been engaged in helping others have the dignity and worth to be heard and have a place at the table. We were part of the women's rights movement. We were part of the civil rights movement as well. And we were standing alongside, we were marching. We have a history of social creed and putting that into action. On Mother's Day, we remember, you know, like I show a video of how it was started by a Methodist who was a nurse who was trying to help those who were coming during the Civil War and then try to recognize the women who were working hard and deliberately. That part of our history is this social justice. And so here we find ourselves on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day that we celebrate as a community. And when I was early in my faith, I had no idea how faithful MLK was. That his, I didn't know he was a pastor. Really. I mean, maybe I did, but I certainly didn't read his letters until divinity school when I recognized that he wrote books and he was a theologian leading out of his love of God completely. I have a dream, he says. The famous proclamation on the lawn of our nation's capital, I have a dream, references scripture over and over and over again. And his dream is that the lion shall lay down with the lamb and that they shall be together in harmony. And this dream that comes from the prophet Isaiah who proclaims this about Jesus is a better sense of peace than we find in our common narrative. Because we say peace most of the time as the absence of violence, right? Where things calm down, kind of like the crazy chaotic waters when they're high surf and all of a sudden it's glassy and beautiful and peaceful. But the word shalom that's picked up from the Old Testament has more than just the understanding of calmness or the lack of violence. It also has in this a understanding of completeness, of wholeness. It's used in Joshua to describe the walls of the temple and how the shalom it would bring, bringing the final brick in where all of them would fit in perfectly into place. That it's not just about being calm or peaceful, but it's about all of us having this seat, this place at the table. And I used my story at the beginning about going to Windy Gap and kind of feeling these other Christians and feeling like they weren't, you know, the same or whatever as a, a, a gap in my understanding because that did not leave room for someone to be the shalom brick that they can bring. My favorite children's ministry thing, and I do it every camp at camp, and I do it on a yearly basis with our keiki at our preschool, is I take a puzzle, right? And I, I scatter it out. And sometimes it's easier if it's a simple puzzle because then I can kind of put it together with them in front of me. But what I didn't tell them is that I like snuck a piece to one of the kids as they walked in. And I said, here, take this and I give them the puzzle piece, and then I put the puzzle together, and I lift it up, and I say, what is wrong with this? 
And of course, what did all the keikis say? It's missing a piece. There is no shalom if you've ever looked for that missing puzzle piece as you're, you know, have painstakingly put it together and there's the one and then someone's like, oh, it's just the one. You finished it. And you're like, no, I didn't finish it. It's got to be here somewhere, right? You're looking for it or the Lego piece. It's just not peaceful and complete. It's not shalom. And so then I, I invite, does anyone know where that puzzle piece is? And so then the keiki, if he's or she is brave enough, picks it up, and then they walk it up, and then they set it in. And then you know what I say? It's complete. We can celebrate. But I remind them that it's not complete without what? You. That it's not complete without you. And if we believe that, it's not complete without you, we have to leave behind my understanding that I had at one point in my life, which was that, like, I'm good and they are bad. Like, this is the way that we live our life. You have to be willing to set that aside and to follow the work of justice in the world where all can come to the table and have their voice as they are because that is the spirit and the work of Martin Luther King Jr., was to provide the black community within our nation a voice, a seat at the table. But the thing is, is that we haven't finished that work. We haven't finished that work for our, our black brothers and sisters, and we haven't finished that work for the other people in our lives as well. I was at this particular time at Divinity School when the black theologians, Willie Jennings and J. Cameron Carter, who had sought their academic career on giving voice to the black intellectuals and the black theologians, they started to realize something unique. And it seems like self-evident, right? Just like that simple, like that simple truth, but goes deeper, which is they realized that the black problem was also the gender problem was also the sexuality problem. It was all of the problems mixed together where people were unable to bring their particularity to the table. Instead, they were told that they must conform to what is good. You know that brick that's missing? Oh, well, you gotta become a triangle to be the cornerstone, right? No, the brick that's missing is the brick that's missing. The puzzle piece has its unique shapes, and it completes the mosaic that God is trying to paint in the world. So the work of those civil rights bearers is to maintain that all people are what? You know the rest of it. All people are created, what was it? Equal. And the lion shall lay down with the lamb, and they will be complete. The, prophet, or the apostle Paul says that neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free, that all together are part of this thing called the body of Christ. And friends, this is shalom. This is peace. When we create the space for our gay and lesbian friends to be with us, not after they change, but as one. For those of a different color, a different background, a different narrative, rich, rags, 
to gather together is the work that was set not just by Martin Luther King Jr., but it was proclaimed anew through him and the others with him. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about how we do that and it, how we combine this personal peace with this social peace as well. And what does it look like to live that out? And my prayer for us is that we might find a better sense of our identity and our inclusion, and we might find a better way to engage with the other and see them not as a problem or as someone different, but see them as that puzzle piece that was missing in the puzzle to shalom, wholeness. And so we pray that this season might be a season not just of the absence of violence, although we pray for that, but of the presence of wholeness. And because as we seek that out, we might find more of the peace that we're hoping for in the world. And so I'm going to close this uh, sermon, not with my prayer, but with a video prayer that I have of Martin Luther King Jr. and his prayer for the church. And so, uh, Kuana, could you play this prayer that Martin Luther King Jr. had for the church? Thank you for your church, founded upon your word, that challenges us to do more than sing and pray. But go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depends on us and not upon you. Help us to realize that humanity was created to shine like the stars and live on through all eternity. Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Help us to walk together. Pray together. Sing together. And live together until that day when all God's children, black, white, red, brown, and yellow, will rejoice in one common band of humanity in the reign of our Lord and of our God. We pray.